it's in times like this where I hope the word of God ministers to your soul. It's not a handpicked, selected passage this morning where I'm trying to accomplish that, but it, but it is the word of God. And this is what we've been studying in the book of John. We're moving through really John's sixth hand-selected sign, which is the healing of a blind person. And he, it's a blind person who was born blind. Every healing of a blind person in Jesus' life was a miracle. But this is what made this one so unique and specific that this had never been done in the history of the world. And John is picking these signs along the way. He's going to have seven of them. We'll see the seventh one in chapter 11. But he's picking these signs to convince you and I to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to be persuaded that we can trust this man for eternity, for our eternity and where we spend. This is why he's picking this. But this miracle is a divinely sourced miracle that nobody could deny. Nobody could deny it. In fact, you're going to see the people who want to deny this miracle go through every iteration possible in order to find a way to deny this miracle. They won't be able to actually deny the miracle. They're just going to be able to try to, they're going to try to explain it away is what they're going to do. And see what Jesus had done here, and this is what's going to throw them in a tailspin is not only had he healed a man born blind, but he had done it on a Sabbath day. That was a big no-no for religious leaders. They're in a pickle, as they say, because it's a clearly it's a divine miracle. And yet, according to their interpretation, understanding the Sabbath, he broke the Sabbath. Would a true man of God break the Mosaic law? You see the, the dilemma they're in. They would say no. They would say no, yet they cannot deny that this is a divinely sourced miracle. Now, one of the things we're going to see in the passage today is moving forward in this story. There's going to be a legal investigation. For those that don't live in the first century, when none of us did, right? We're not Jews living in the first century. We may not understand this. When something happened that was of a spiritual nature or associated with the divine, the people would bring that situation to the Jewish religious leaders, the, which happened to be also their Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And then they would evaluate the situation. They would call witnesses. They would interrogate and investigate. What we're about to witness here the next two weeks is really the, the interrogation or the investigation of this event. And of course, the blind man's going to be involved. They're going to question him. We're going to see this morning that they're also going to bring his parents in to question them. And then we'll see next week that they don't like where they've gotten the first two times, and they're going to bring the blind man back in a second time. So this is what we're going to look at, and we're going to look at the dialogues that took place here. One quick contextual comment, the healing took place on the Sabbath, but because of what we start to see in terms of the movement of people, it's most likely that the interrogation and investigation happened the day after the Sabbath. Otherwise, all these people wouldn't be moving back and forth the way they are because that would have been breaking the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. It seems like this is happening the day after, and this is what we're going to look at this morning, is now this this blind man is going to have an audience with the Pharisees. Remember his first audience was with who? Well, it was with his neighbors and those who had seen him begging. We looked at that last week. But now they're going to bring him to the Pharisees. Verses 13 through 14, read this. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And as I mentioned, it's culturally interesting to watch this happen. This, they're bringing him to this man. And this really gives us significance of the healing. Because what it shows us is that even in the conversation before, they don't have an answer as to why this happened, how this happened, if this was legitimate. They're looking for a higher authority now to validate or confirm what they don't understand. And by the way, the reason for that is what the blind man's going to point out down in verse 32. Let's just jump ahead real quickly. Notice what he says, since the world began, 
It has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This was the mindset of everybody. We've never seen this before. This has never happened before. There's nothing in recorded history about this. This has got to be a divinely sourced miracle. It's undeniable that God is the one who opened this guy's eyes. The Pharisees are the official ruling body. And so again, they bring this man to the Pharisees. They're interested in presenting because they want to know how this happened. They didn't get to the bottom of that. If you remember last week, they were like, how did this happen? He just gives the facts. There was this man, he made clay, he put it on my eyes, he told me to go wash it off, and now I see. And it was just, just the facts. And then they said, where is he? And he didn't even know where Jesus was. And it makes sense, right? Because if Jesus rubs the clay, he goes 700 yards down the pool of Siloam, washes off, he sees for the first time, Jesus has disappeared. He didn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus could walk right up to him and he'd be like, hey, bro, can I get by you? I'm trying to, like, he wouldn't even know, right? Because he'd never seen him before, all right? Maybe he would recognize his voice. So the crowd had already done their mini investigation. They hadn't come up with any answers. Now, what's ironic about this, and again, I just got to point this out because we leave chapter eight. We've been out of chapter eight for a couple of weeks. So sometimes you forget where we come from, but now the crowd is going to bring this man, this blind man to the very group of people who had the day before picked up stones to stone Jesus. Not a very impartial judge and jury there. He's, but, but this is who they got. This is their religious leaders. So they bring this man to him. We get this fact again that it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And here's the problem. This is going to be the rub. This is what's going to cause the religious leaders just a ton of angst. Because they can't understand how Jesus could do this. How a divine miracle in this way could be performed on the Sabbath. In fact, the problem is we're going to see from the Pharisees' reaction is the verbs, right? You can't do anything on the Sabbath. That's, that's their issue. So their problem is that Jesus made the clay and that Jesus opened his eyes. See, Jesus is doing a lot of things on the Sabbath, and that was what they thought you couldn't do on the Sabbath. You couldn't work, and they define work in this way. In fact, both of these actions would have been considered appropriate working on the Sabbath day. So you can see the dilemma they're in. If this is truly from God, then how can a man of God do something against the word of God? How can that work? And that's kind of the dilemma they're up against. By the way, Jesus also had the man walk down to the pool of Siloam. We talked about this earlier, but from the temple, you can see up there at the top right of your picture, down that path down to the bottom left of your picture, that's the pool of Siloam, is about 700 yards. So seven football fields down and back. And when you, when you do the calculations, Jesus had pushed this man over the, the Pharisees' interpretation of what a Sabbath day journey could be. He had pushed him over that length by about a quarter mile. So now Jesus is not only breaking the Sabbath himself, what else is he doing? He's causing this guy to break the Sabbath. So this is a, Jesus is a real troublemaker, you know, it's from the religious leader's perspective. So there's a lot going on in their thinking here. One of the things that you, we've got to understand, and this doesn't make any sense to us, is the Pharisees even believe that healing somebody on the Sabbath, unless their life was in imminent danger, was breaking the law of Moses. Their mindset was, you can wait to be healed six other days of the week. Like, don't do it on the Sabbath. It's kind of the idea. And their mindset was that God would never do it on the Sabbath, that he would wait for the other six days of the week. So you got a lot of angst here. And by the way, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, Jesus wasn't afraid of a little conflict. Jesus wasn't afraid of pushing 
up against kind of an established way of thinking that was not biblical. He had no problem doing that. In fact, when we look at the, the miracles of Jesus Christ, I think that out of all the miracles recorded in the Gospels, I think a third of them, I, I've got a slide here later, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think it's a third of them happened on a Sabbath day. So he's pushing the envelope with these guys a little bit. He wants them to understand that they've got a, a, a wrong interpretation of the Sabbath. We just saw that not too long ago in John 5. It was the same concept where he healed the man uh, at the pool of Bethesda. He did it on a Sabbath day. These Jewish religious leaders are going to now hear and evaluate testimony. So in verses 15 through 16, they've got the guy there, and this is what they said. They also asked him again, which by the way, again means they've already asked him, right? So it's just like, hey, we'll see, this is how this goes. Asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. He's getting shorter and shorter, you know, and they, they do tell you that on the witness stand. When you're being cross-examined, just answer the question. Don't give them any more information than what they ask. So he's kind of following that advice. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. As the Pharisees hear this man's testimony, they're they're hearing his story. They, they want to make judgment on this event. And the man, they just have him repeat the story. Again, as I brought out, I brought out he's just restating the facts. He's not giving his opinion on anything. He's kind of playing it safe. We're going to see later in the passage today. In fact, you, you probably heard it when Josh read it. There's a reason for this. There's a fear of the religious leaders. They've got this, this cultural power that they hold over every Jew in that culture. They can put them out of the synagogue. We'll talk about why that's such a big deal later. So he's playing it close to the vest. We're going to see that as this conversation goes on, this man has incredible fortitude. He is, uh, throughout this, not only does he get sight, but his spine is going to grow some steel. And he's going to eventually stand up to these guys because he's going to be sick of their shenanigans. And, and there's only so many times you can tell a story before you're like, bro, what else am I going to say? That's the story. And that's where this guy's going to get, but he's not quite there yet. He's still a little, let's stick to the facts. So based on a simple and straightforward testimony, the, the Pharisees immediately break into two separate groups who kept on saying the following things. That There's an imperfect tense there with the word saying. They kept on saying. This was a constant argument, constant disagreement, constant division, talking over one another. No, it's this. No, it's this. No, it's this. Back and forth, two main groups. The first group says this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. In fact, this group would never even allow themselves to consider the miracle because in their mind, he did it on the Sabbath that automatically disqualifies him. We don't have to evaluate the miracle. That was their mindset. He's already broken the law of Moses. I don't have to look at anything else. This guy's a sinner. And that was their mindset. Uh, would a true man of God actually break the revealed word of God? That was their thinking from this group. And by the way, that's the right way to think if your premise is correct. The premise is if you break the word of God, you're not a man of God. That's, that's a true statement. You can't be a, a man of God or a man from God if you're just breaking his, his word or breaking his laws. That doesn't, those don't go together. The problem with the Pharisees is that their premise wasn't correct. The problem with the Pharisees is you had the law of Moses and they were so concerned about breaking the law of Moses, they created a fence line 500 feet from ever breaking the law of Moses and then started calling their fence line the law. We do this all the time. In fact, if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So let's say you take your kids to the Grand Canyon 
he would say, hey, look, don't go up to the edge. And then finally, you got that one child, you're like, don't go within 10 feet of the edge. They're, they're getting here, and you're like, man, you're way too close, my man. You're like, you're going to you're gonna have to back up. And what happens over time is then the 10 feet from the edge becomes the law. And then when someone gets 10 feet, you're still a little uncomfortable. They're getting a little too close. Then someone's going to get 20 feet from the edge, right? And you just, you keep bumping them out. And then that becomes the law. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. They just kept bumping the fences back with all good intentions initially. But then the fences became binding, not the law itself. And they're judging Jesus on the basis of their fences, not the law. Since Jesus violated the Sabbath command in their minds, This in and of itself would be undeniable proof that he's not from God. Can't be from God, he broke the Sabbath. But he didn't break the Sabbath, he broke their fences regarding the Sabbath. That's what we're going to look at a little bit more closely. So in their mind, they don't even have to evaluate the miracle. It's a non-starter. Dude's a sinner, broke the law, we don't have to look at what he's doing. The one thing that this group never considered is that their interpretation of the Sabbath might be wrong. That's what they never considered. That was the wrong premise. See, Jesus had violated their interpretation of the Sabbath, but Jesus had not violated the Sabbath according to Moses. That's what they never considered. And let me just take a quick sidebar on the Sabbath because this comes up often, and I think this would be helpful here to understand and maybe maybe even provide some, I don't want to provide an excuse for the Pharisees, but I want to provide an explanation of where a, a good-hearted idea turns bad. And by the way, that's the very definition of legalism. It always starts with a good-hearted idea, and it always ruins people. It always ends up in ruin. And so we'll look at that as we play through. But the Sabbath day was just simply divinely set apart for rest in the Mosaic law. Jews weren't to engage in any work on the Sabbath day. The issue became, what is work? How do you define work? It was agreed upon that you couldn't engage in work on the Sabbath day, but what is that work? And that was where the disagreement came. By the way, you know, oftentimes it's, it's kind of funny to teach kids because they'll, you'll ask them, why did God rest on the seventh day? They're like, man, he was tired, man. He was, he was doing it. And that's like, no, God was not tired. That's actually not why he did it. He was establishing a principle of rest designed for people because he cared about people. That's Ultimately, I mean, we can, we can talk a lot more about how it separated the nation from all the other nations, how it was designed to cause them to stand out. But ultimately, Sabbath rest is designed for people because God cares about people. It's interesting how the designer, how the creator owner actually knows his product that he created. He actually knows what we need. You know, they've done sociological studies. They've compared two, two different groups of people, people that work six days and take a seventh day off and people that work seven days just straight through. And guess which group is always more productive? Yeah, shock you. Six days, taking a day off. That shouldn't, that doesn't make sense. More time, more work, more production, right? That's how we naturally think. In fact, uh, it's even worse when you're a farmer, when you're in the agricultural field. I've got a brother-in-law as a farmer. Guess what his schedule is? 24-7. That's what his irrigation machine goes down. He doesn't call Roto-Rooter or the plumber or whatever. He's out there on the irrigation machine fixing it. It's 24-7. Can you imagine an agricultural community that just consistently took the seventh day off? And then not only that, they, took, they were supposed to take the seventh year off. Anybody, anybody like working all the time? What, I mean, what if your boss said, hey, we're going to give you every seventh year off just to be with your family? I'm like, 
I'm in. Like, I am in. Like, I'll take that job. You pay me, you can even pay me less. I'll take that job, right? And God said, when they were to do that, he would provide double in year six. So it's not like, hey, you're going to take year seven off. I'm sorry about the rice and beans. You know, you'll get, you'll get meat again, you know, in the eighth year. No, he provided double. I mean, this is how God wanted to provide for his, his nation. You know what they did? They thumbed their nose and said, no, I think we'll still work. I think we'll still do things. I don't think we're going to give the seventh year off. I don't think we're going to take care of the land. And there was a, a problem with that. And we'll kind of read that. By the way, let me just read this. I don't want to get off too far, but I just think you, you would find this interesting. To, to carry a burden on the Sabbath day was called work, according to the Jews. The question became, what is a burden? What is work? You know, they just, they're always like finding this idea to, to define things. And so scribal law began to define what a burden was that you could not carry. Check this out. You couldn't carry food equal in weight to a dried fig, or you broke the Sabbath law. You could only carry enough wine for mixing in a goblet. That kind of, culturally, that miss, I miss that. I don't understand that. But listen to this. You could only carry enough milk for one swallow. <laughs> so you, you got to make it like a chipmunk swallow. You know, like you fill your cheeks, you get some extra milk. You could only carry enough honey to put in upon a wound. You can only oil enough to anoint a small member, maybe your pinky toe. I don't know, like a small member of your body. Water enough to moisten eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon. And then check this out, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. If you went over that, you'd be in big trouble. So I mean, we could go on and on. I, I've got a whole list of this. Some modern day rabbinical teaching is sad. No writing, no erasing with a you know, pencil. No tearing of paper, no, no business transactions. That makes sense. That actually fits the heart of the law. No driving or riding in cars or any other vehicles. No shopping, no using the telephone. No turning on or off anything which uses electricity, including lights, radios, televisions, computer, air conditioners. And all. So you better get the air conditioner set the night before Saturday because... You know, this is, this is a mindset. No cooking, no baking or kindling a fire, no gardening, no grass mowing, no doing laundry. Now that last one I'm kind of for, but I, you know. <laughs> but the point is this, is when you start to try to overdefine something, you, you get out over your skis, as they say. And, they, and these guys just got out over their skis all the time on everything. And this is their mindset toward Jesus. See, God was to be worshiped on the Sabbath. Rest was to be taken, but it was designed for the benefit and the good of the worshiper of God. That's what it was designed for. God cares about people. You know, Mark 2, we know that story where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. They're hungry. It's the Sabbath. So they pick off a couple of ears off of the grain, and they eat it. And the Pharisees viewed that as harvesting. They said, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. No, we're not. We're just plucking a couple heads of grain. We're just getting a snack. No, you're harvesting. And Jesus says something very compelling to them. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the, the Sabbath was made to benefit man, to, to be good to man, to provide for man, to care for man. It wasn't to be worshiped as a holy thing itself. In fact, it was designed to teach the people of Israel who worshiped God that day to faith, rest, and trust in him for every aspect of their daily life. That's what it was designed to do. So the Sabbath gave them opportunity to rest their bodies, to trust the Lord for their crops and provision. Again, 
weekly opportunity to just sit back on your lawn chair with some sweet tea and say, man, God is good. (laughs) I love this. Man, he's awesome. He's making me take a rest, which is what good shepherds do, Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is the kind of God we serve. He wants you to have rest. He wants you worn out. He wants you burnt out. He doesn't want you struggling. He wants to provide you with rest throughout your life. And so he makes us, he, he made this, this group rest. Now, the religious leaders, on, on, uh, in contrast, because they went so far and got out over their skis and kept drawing the fence lines back and back, uh, back and back further, they made the Sabbath a burden. And when you engage in legalism, you will become inconsistent, you will become hypocritical, and you will become critical of all other people. That's where legalism will always lead. It may start off with a good heart, it will always end in destruction and ruin. And I would say, just test me on that, but I care too much about you to say that. Don't do it. <laughs> it's really, don't go down that line. Don't get out over your skis. Stay with, stay with the word of God. Don't go farther. Don't go less. Just stay right there and, and lock into what the teaching of the word of God says. You know, in Matthew 12, 11 through 12, this, this shows the ridiculousness of a, a legalistic approach to the Sabbath, Jesus says, again, to these same, this same group of leaders, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And you know the answer to that question is? All of them would do that. Because the sheep, again, brought them what? Money and goods. And they're not going to let a, a, an investment go to waste. So they're going to pull that sheep out. They don't want that sheep to die in a pit. And here they are criticizing Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. You see the hypocrisy? And this is what he says, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, it's not about just work or activity that was banned. It was the type of work or activity, the type of mentality, the type of motivation that was causing someone to do it. Now, if it's, I'm going to go move my sheep from this field to this field, because once I get them over there, they can eat and get fat, and I don't want to lose a day of production, that would be a violation of the Sabbath. But as I'm walking around enjoying the goodness of God, and I hear this, this dumb sheep won't shut up, and he's just ba ba ba, and I'm like, what in the world? What's going on? And I look over, and he's fallen into a ditch. I'm going to pull him out. Because it's good for the sheep. God cares not only about man, but about animals as well. And again, it just goes back to the fact, the whole heart behind it is God gave the Sabbath because he cares about people. Now, this is where I want to give the Pharisees a little grace, which is hard to even say, you know, it's like, we're so used to not liking the Pharisees. God gave the Sabbath, I mentioned this earlier, to allow the land to rest in Israel. And it may have been this exact connection that caused the overreaction by the Pharisees in Jesus' day. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament for just a second. Second Chronicles 36, 20. Notice this. This is uh, the cause given for the length of time they would be in exile in Babylon. Notice what Second uh, Chronicles says. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Then notice the part I've got highlighted. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And what this, what this tells us is this. One of the reasons the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon is because they were not observing the seventh year Sabbath 
for the land. And guess how many cycles of seven they didn't do that for? 70. God says, okay, you're not going to observe my Sabbath. I'm going to put you in exile. We're going to give the land 70 years of rest that you should have given it every seven years, one at a time. And this is part of the reason. And so when the Jews come back to Jerusalem, they come back to their land. Guess what? There's a group of Jews said, hey, we ain't doing this Babylonian thing again. We're going to start observing the Sabbath in the land, and we're going to be hardcore tight on the Mosaic law. And you see this, this great heart behind it, the, the rise of Ezra and his ministry, where he got up and he just, he was reading the law of Moses, and he's just reading it through, and the people were weeping, hearing the word of God. I don't know if you, we could pull that off today, read through Leviticus and get people crying. Wow, that's really touching, all the details in the sacrificial system. But it was to them because they were hearing the word of God. And so you had this group that, that rose up out of that return. And they said, we're not going to do this again. And then guess what? Out of that great heart, they moved the fences back a little bit. Yeah, we're getting a little too close again. Oh, we're getting a little too close again. We're getting a, and then the Pharisees come on the scene. And so they're, they're way back there now. And thinking, we're not going to let this happen Again, and so as I've said before, legalism always starts with the best of intentions. It always ends in personal ruin. This is a great example of that in the lives of the Pharisees. The second group now, so, so we've got that group. They said, there, there ain't no way, violated the Sabbath, dude's a sinner. I don't even want to look at the miracle. We've got the second group. They're willing to look at it from a different perspective. They're willing to look at the, the healing and work their way from that point. And so they say this. How can a man, back to verses 15 and 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? They looked at the divine miracle, said, let's consider that and work our way backward to who Jesus is. If he, if he could do this, this is an undeniable divine miracle. He must be divine. We must have our Sabbath understanding off. And so this group was willing to humbly consider that they might be wrong regarding their Sabbath interpretation understanding. By the way, Great application principle for us to take in our day. Just introduce into your vocabulary, I might be wrong. Start an argument with your spouse the next time. I might be wrong, but this is what I'm saying. The boss, boss, I might be wrong, but this is what I'm saying. I'm telling you, you introduce that phrase into your vocabulary, you're going to have a lot less conflict in your life because it's, it's an expression of humility. It's a recognition that, what's so funny, if I gave a paper this morning and I said, do you know everything there is to know about everything? Sign your name if you do. And we pass it around the church. That, that sheet, I, I don't know everybody here. My guess is that sheet would be blank by the time it cycled its way back up here. And yet when someone tells you you're wrong, you get all bent out of shape about it. <laughs> Could it be in that one instance that they're actually right about something you already agree with, that you don't know everything and you're not right all the time. Good, good answer. Someone said, no, that's not, that could never happen. <laughs> Which is exactly why we get bent out of shape when someone tells us that we're wrong or we even have to admit that we're wrong. This group was saying, you know what? We might be wrong. That's a great start to getting to the truth. That's a great start to getting to the truth. And they're gonna get to it. They just had a different starting point than the previous group. And by the way, there was a division among them, imperfect tense, ongoing, continual division. They couldn't get to an answer. They couldn't get to a 
a compromise. It's a sharp disagreement. So they can't get it figured out. They've asked the man what's happened. He's told them. And now they say, well, we can't agree. So guess what they do? They turn to the blind man and say, well, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus? And this is what he says here. When he's, they basically say, give us your thoughts. Verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said he is a prophet. So there's this major division. What's your opinion, basically? You're going to see again, um, this is the first time as we're kind of tracing this man's progression, it's the first time he's going to go outside of the facts. He's not going to just report the facts. He's actually going to say something a little bit further than the facts. But you're going to see that he's still very careful here. And we'll, we'll point out why he's being careful. Because he said he's a prophet. I believe he's still playing it safe. Because he doesn't say he is the prophet. Remember, we've talked about that in the book of John. He's not the prophet spoken of by Moses. Because that would have had messianic implications. Which would have gotten him in trouble. We'll see later in verse 22. But he says he's a prophet. What he's basically saying is this. And... and first century Jewish vernacular. He's basically saying, yeah, Jesus is a good guy. That's all I know. <laughs> Apparently this is a good thing. He must be a good guy. That's all I know. This is kind of what he's saying. And if he had to align with one group or another, he'd probably align with the group that said, how could a man who's a sinner do such things? In other words, he's very impressed with the miracle. He's working his way backward from that. So again, if he can't be a sinner, he's got to have some connection to God. Safest thing to say for him in this scenario is he, maybe he's a prophet. <laughs> I don't know. So he's still taking it pretty easy. What's really fascinating is the religious leaders don't even answer the guy. They don't even address in him his statement. They're basically like, whatever, let's keep going with the investigation. And the strategy then becomes, and I want you to see how they question his parents. They say, we've got to find something wrong with this miracle. So the, the, the next stage in this investigation, we're gonna, forget this guy, you know, he's, he's a little slow on the uptake. I don't know what they said about him. It's like, forget this guy. Let's go talk to his parents. They'll know. They'll know. Maybe they'll give us some information that we don't have. Maybe they'll give us enough for a loophole that we can get our way out of this. And so they began to question the parents. And what they're going to question is, is crazy. They're going to basically say, now, was he really blind? Y'all been faking this all these years. I mean, it's basically what they're going to say. We'll see kind of the way they ask. But the problem with the Pharisees is they did not believe. Verse 18 and 19, it says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight. So they're having a problem even with the premise that this guy was ever blind and that if he was blind, he was definitely wasn't born blind. They're having a problem with that premise. They don't even believe that. They're not persuaded until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them and saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Simply put, they don't believe the report concerning this man. They, they don't believe that he's been born blind. There's, there's no way, there's gotta be a loophole here. And this is kind of what they're looking for. And part of the reason I think is because of the implications of the miracle. If they agree that the miracle took place, they have a real big problem on their hands because now they gotta deal with it. Jesus has really put them in a pickle. Again, healing on the Sabbath, doing a miracle that's never been done in recorded history. The facts are pointing to the fact that this is a divine miracle and they've already determined there's no way this is. So they get, they get a problem. They're looking for a loophole. They're looking for his origins and now they, they bring in his parents. And the first question really is, can you, can you tell us who he is? Is this your son? Do, do you know that for sure? And the questions are straightforward, but the questions implied are, are you sure this is your son? 
And are you sure he was born blind? The, ba- uh, the Pharisees were basically insinuating by these questions, you guys have been lying and deceiving everybody for all these years. What gain would the parents get out of that? To have a son who's not part of the family, to have a son that doesn't work in the family business, to have a son that basically sits around and begs all day, every day, a son that would be worthless and, val- and, and of no value in that society. They, they had very little value for anyone that had a handicap. What benefit would they get out of that? But this is what the Pharisees are insinuating. And I love this. It says the phrase, who you say, okay, they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? Used in the present tense, indicating they'd already confirmed this for the Pharisees. They're confirming it once again. They've already said that. The reason I bring this out is because when people don't want to believe the facts, what is one method that they often employ? They keep asking questions. They keep going over the story. In fact, uh, police interrogators do this. When they don't believe the suspect in front of them is telling them the truth, what do they do? They keep going over the story over and over again. And what are they looking for? They're looking for a loophole. They're looking for one thing that they say wrong that they can now capitalize on and, and quote unquote, get them. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for deception. And so you keep asking the same questions over and over again to see if someone's lying to you to see if they add a diff, an additional detail that they didn't bring up before. Or leave, they leave a detail out that they didn't. They're going through this over and over again, not only with the man, but also the parents. And we're going to see next week when they're done with the parents, because they don't get what they want, they bring the man back again. And this is when the man's like, enough, like fooey with y'all. And he just starts loading into those guys. And we'll, we'll see that next week. It's kind of a fun thing to see. But most likely when the man had been healed, he'd gone to his parents whom he'd never seen before this day. Can you imagine that reunion? This man walks in the door. Mom and dad see light in his eyes for the first time. And just like, oh, you just love to be a fly on the wall for that. Just awesome. Him to be able to see his mother's face for the first time, his father's face. Just incredible reunion. We saw back in 9-8 that, that his neighbors had seen him. So it's most likely he had gone home. And that would make sense. Be the first place I would go. You've been blind all your life. I want to go see the people that I love. I want to go, you know, see what they look like. So they'd probably seen him. He's probably told them the story, which makes their answers even more interesting because they're on the hot seat with the, the legal establishment that has this, this punishment that they can hang over them, kicking them out of the synagogue. And so we'll see how they handle this whole situation. So the Pharisees want them to explain the healing. They can't figure it out. The neighbors couldn't fi- figure it out. The man doesn't even know. He just tells what Jesus did. Now they've asked the man, he's like, I don't know. He's a, maybe he's a prophet. I, I don't know. Now they're asking the parents, how does he now see? And what's so funny is this was their responsibility to come up with this answer. And you, could, you can just tell the situation. They're, they're supposed to have the answer. They don't have it. They're looking for something to grab onto. And so the Pharisees have asked the blind man what his thoughts were of Jesus. Now they've asked his parents how this was possible. And all it does is it just shows how perplexing this miracle was. It's clearly a divine miracle. They just don't want to believe it. They're looking for any way on planet earth to not believe it. The parents are, are very simple. They've been trained by a good attorney. They're not going to give a lot of information. And so this is what we know. They say, uh, verse 20 through 21, his parents answered him, said, we know that this is our son. <laughs> Should be a period, right? <laughs> we know. We know that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. We're going to see that that's probably a little deception there. It's probably a little lie. 
A little lie is still the equivalent to a big lie. I don't want to, <laughs> but they're probably lying there. But they say he is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. But again, we're going to see that they're very careful in what they say. Things that they know intuitively, instinctively, they know he's their son and they know he was born blind. Any parent in this room, I mean, give me a break. If someone says, is that your child? You'd be like, yep, yep, that's it. I mean, you know, you don't need to, you know, I, some of my kids have birthmarks. But when I see them across the room, if someone says, is that your child? I'm like, hold on, so let me check their birthmark. They got, I don't need to check their birthmark. I, I, like, I know that's my child, right? I, I completely understand, and I know this is what his parents are saying. Like, yeah, of course, we know this. This is our son, and we know that he was born blind. They're scared. Again, I've, I've alluded to it. We're going to get there in the very next verse, verse 22, but let's just poke ahead. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Notice their answer about Jesus. We'll get to there. But who opened his eyes? We don't know. They knew, I believe. They just didn't want to say his name out loud. They didn't want to risk getting in trouble. But can you imagine the heartache of these parents to, to bring their baby home and, and he was born blind? To, to realize like at some point, wow, the baby doesn't look like it's responding to my hands or my voice, and it doesn't look like it can see, and then they just go get that diagnosis from the doctor. I mean, that would be tough in our day. It was just not something we would expect. You know, we generally, when someone gives birth, we were like, we count the fingers and the toes, and we're ready to go. You know, it's like, well, okay, 10 fingers, 10 toes, they're healthy. You know, and you find out a little bit later that the boy can't see. This would have been almost a death sentence in this culture because of what would become of him, the value that people didn't place on handicapped life. Did the parents know this is their son? I mean, give me a break. They've lived this heartache for however long he's been alive. So they clearly know this. They know that the man's their son. They know that he was born blind. But now they're going to comment on a couple of things they don't know. And they're, and they're trying to pass the buck a little bit. And again, it's due to fear. It's due to fear that they do this. First thing, they, they don't know this. They, they really don't know how he got healed. They don't understand that. They're just like everybody else in this story. They're like, this is divine. Something's going on here. We don't really understand it. That's a true statement. The second statement's not as true. Or they, don't, they said they don't know who opened his eyes. They admit ignorance on who behind the miraculous healing. But if you jump back down to verse 11, jump back down to verse 11, he's in the midst of his neighbors, okay, people that know him. I think you could make the argument that his parents were probably there. And if not, maybe the neighbors who had heard it, or maybe when he went back home, he told his parents. But this was his messaging. This was his messaging to his neighbors. Verse 11, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. See, he had probably told him that Jesus had healed him. But notice in this situation with the Pharisees, they're being very careful not to mention Jesus' name. We don't know, again, some of this is speculation, but maybe his parents were in the crowd the day before when these same men picked up stones to throw at Jesus, and Jesus miraculously walked through them. Maybe they had heard this man exclaim, before Abraham was, I am. Maybe they had seen all this stuff. Maybe they were part of the crowd coming into the Feast of Tabernacles that knew, that was looking for Jesus because they knew the religious leaders were looking for him because they hated him. They wanted to kill him. I'm sure all of that, some of that was common knowledge. And so now this very Jesus is the very one that's healed your son. And so part of you wants to get up and scream, yes, Jesus, because of what he's done for my son. 
But then part of you said, I can't say anything because I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my life as I know it being put out of the synagogue. It's really interesting because of the next statement. I'm not going to say they threw their son under the bus, but they definitely took their neck out of the guillotine. (laughs) They just kind of left his in there, so to speak. They said, he's of age. You know, ask him. He, He will speak for himself. He's of age, literally. He is an adult. And kids, be careful wanting to grow up. One day your parents might say, yeah, he's an adult, she's an adult, they can take care, you know, whatever, all joking aside. But he, but he says, literally, he's an adult, ask him. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get out of the hot seat. They're trying to get out of the glaring light of this cross-examination by the Pharisees. And as I mentioned, they, they're probably thrilled that their son's healed. In fact, they probably want to find Jesus and thank him. They just want to do it privately so that they don't get caught by the Pharisees acting like they like Jesus, because that might have some implications on their life. We get the, the inside. I've already kind of spoiled it, but verse 22, the reason for this, the reason for their tension, their, their, their anxiety, their, their stiffness, if you will, is found in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This word fear means exactly what you think. It means to to be terrified. That's really what comes through to frighten. It's you're in an apprehensive state. The other thing is uh, the verb is used in an imperfect tense. It indicates ongoing action of the past. In other words, when they appeared before the Sanhedrin, they were already terrified of them. They've been terrified to show too much attention to this Jesus character. They've been walking around their life just trying to avoid any kind of interaction with these uh, Jewish religious leaders, because they, they feared if they showed any kind of friendliness or warmth to even the concept that Jesus was the Christ, they knew they're going to be in big trouble. Now they're in the spotlight. And they're probably like, he's probably, you know, the husband's probably saying to his wife, don't say too much. And she's probably saying, you talk too much, you better shut it down. You know, you better keep it simple. And this is what they do in their interrogation process. So their demeanors is very calculated, I think, as we see the interview. And this is why in, in some ways it's like, let me get my neck out of the guillotine. Son, we'll see you later. Good luck. You know, it's like they're saving their own hide here. And this is the reason for the fear. In fact, you can kind of see it. Let's go back to, um, let's go, yeah, go, let's go back to verse 22. You can kind of see that word. I like to point this out as we go Bible study wise, but you'll see that word for, right? F-O-R it just kind of gives us the reason. Okay. It gives us the reason that they're terrified. And we're going to look at that. The reason for their fear now is simply this. They had heard people, it was kind of common knowledge that the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders had agreed already, it says, means to put something together or to compose something. And what had they agreed to? They agreed that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue. And the word there, uh, if it's a third class condition, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if they do, there's going to be a consequence. And the consequence has already been determined. So all we have to do now as a Jewish religious leader is if I hear somebody confess that Jesus is Christ, the consequence has already been determined. They're going to get that consequence is the idea. And here's what the condition was. If they confess, by the way, this is a word, and I don't want to get too far off on this. This is the, the standard word for confession in the Bible. It's the Greek word homologeo. It's, it's a compound word, meaning the same and to speak. It means to assent, to consent, to admit, or to agree with. Literally, the word means to say the same thing. 
what were they saying the same thing as? Well, they were agreeing with Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the Christ. Jesus said, I'm the great I am. Jesus said, I'm sent from heaven. And if they confessed or agreed with Jesus, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. They might even also be agreeing with somebody else, maybe his disciples or other people that believe that Jesus was a Christ. So they're agreeing with somebody. They're saying the same thing as somebody else. What you're not going to find built into that word is the concept of asking. I say that to say, you go to 1 John 1, 9, it's, I'm totally getting off track here, but just bear with me. This is related to this word. 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll ask people, what does that word confess mean? They'll say, you got to ask for forgiveness. That's so foreign to the meaning of that word. That is not what 1 John 1, 9 is teaching. 1 John 1, 9 is teaching the exact same thing that the word teaches here. You're saying the same thing about your sin that God is saying. That's all confession is. You're just agreeing with God that what you did was sinful. You're not justifying it. You're not trying to hide it. You're not trying to explain it away. You're saying, when I lost my temper on the road, I know that guy was a jerk. This is how we typically do it. That guy was a jerk. He deserved what was coming to him. That AT&T, they overcharged me every time. That person deserved my angry voice on the other line. No, when you lost your temper, when you engaged in this sin, it was wrong, period. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you got resources that you have not even explored the depths of at this point in your life. You've got resources to handle every situation in a way that would bring honor and glory to your Father in heaven. We just don't realize that. We just, we just try to justify it. You got it coming. No, we didn't. You have resources that you didn't utilize. And that's sin. And God just simply wants us in 1 John 1, 9 to agree with him and say, yeah, that's sin. That was wrong. I had no reason to do that. That was wrong. That brought you dishonor. And just just say the same thing that God would say about it. That's all it is. And so this is all confession is here. They're saying the same thing about Jesus that Jesus was saying about himself, that he's the Christ. They're saying the same thing about Jesus that probably other people in the crowd were saying about Jesus. This is the Christ. They're agreeing with them. If they agreed with Jesus's claims or somebody else's claims about Jesus's identity as being the Christ, there would be a consequence. And this consequence, as listed here, of being put out of the synagogue was a big deal. It was a huge deterrent for most of the Jews. Being put out literally means to put away from, separated, not allowed in is kind of the idea. We use the word excommunicated in our day, and that's kind of captures the, the essence of this. And so what we don't understand, and we'll kind of go through some detail, it carried some religious and some social stigma when you were put out of the synagogue for the Jewish person in the first century. You know, to confess that Jesus, the man standing in front of them was the Christ, was to look at this man standing before you and said, this is the one that was promised from Genesis 3.15. This is the one Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 18. This is the one. This is the man who's the seed of Abraham. This is the man who's the seed of David. This is the suffering servant I read about in Isaiah 53 standing right in front of me. That would be what confession that Jesus is the Christ. So this was actually a big deal to agree or to say the same thing about Jesus being the Christ. This one decision, if someone took that step and confessed that or agreed with that, the Jewish religious leaders had a, a very strong deterrent because it could affect their religious participation at the synagogue. It would destroy their spiritual network or community. It would leave them feeling isolated. For some Jews, they may even question their ability to participate in the eternal kingdom, that it might have some eternal consequences where they're not going to be in the kingdom. They had some concerns about that. 
They believe that their business uh, or their business and their commerce opportunities would be destroyed. Their whole business network was all centered around the synagogue and, and the culture of the Jewish community around them. They couldn't make a living anymore. Being excommunicated from the synagogue would bring them to financial ruin. All of this is incorporated in that. And then it would destroy relationships with both family and friends and destroying their entire social network. So it was a huge deal. Imagine making one decision that would cost you your family, your church family, and your job. That's what this decision would cost these Jews in the first century. And this explains why these, this man's parents were fearful of the Jews. It explains why they want to get their neck off the guillotine and save their hides, so to speak, because they understood what a significant confession or any kind of association with Jesus would get them. In fact, it was so strong that do you know many of the Pharisees in this group that we're reading about right now, probably the group that says, well, can a sinner do such, you know, kind of take it a soft, I don't know, maybe we should investigate this a little bit more. Do you know that when we get to John 12, look at what we read. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That tells us that there were even some Pharisees who believed in Jesus but wouldn't openly confess or or state their agreement of Jesus' identity with Jesus because they feared being put out of the synagogues. We went all the way up to the top here. And this is why that final phrase, therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him, translated for this reason or account of this. And And John just simply explains why they're protecting themselves because most parents wouldn't do that, right? They'd kind of step in line for their kids and maybe take that bullet, so to speak. But they didn't do that. And this is why he's explaining it. They didn't like the bright light underneath the investigation or interrogation of the, of the Pharisees. So next week, again, we're going to look at a part two of this. We're going to look at more interrogation. This time they're going to bring the blind men back. And it's going to be fun because we're going to see he's had enough of their their stuff, you know, their shenanigans. And so he's going to, he's going to get after them next week. And so that's going to be kind of fun to look at. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, just appreciate your word. Appreciate this situation, this scenario, just, just looking through the great love by which you loved even this, this first century audience that, that hated you, that wanted to kill you. And yet you do this miracle that really puts uh, the matter on the table where they, they've got no explanation other than to try to explain it away, but you really brought them to that point, And I know you did it out of your love. So we're just grateful to see that, just grateful to observe your character. And Lord, we want to just leave here this morning with, with you just exalted in our thinking. May you receive the glory and honor that you deserve from each one of us individually today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.